So we are in the book of Acts. And last time Paul was going up to the temple to sacrifice and to clear a Nazarite vow and was attacked by a mob that was incited by uh, Jews from the province of Asia. And of course you'll remember that the province of Asia is where he was frequently embroiled in riots. So I'm assuming that these guys sent somebody to Jerusalem to complain and they were around and when they saw Paul they caused a riot. So the Romans come and scoop him up. He persuades the Romans to let him talk to the crowd. He talks to the crowd and when he gets to the point where he says Yeshua sent him on his mission, that's when the place erupts again and the Romans have to drag him out. So that's where we are. So we're in Acts 22 starting in verse 22. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Okay, a couple things. The Roman tribune just figures that this is another Jew who is a part of the subjected peoples, causing trouble, and is going to beat the truth out of it. Paul says that he's a citizen. I'll come back to that in just a minute. That stops them. And then the tribune has this sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach of, oh, shoot, we have a false arrest here. So it would be like here in the United States if a cop arrested you for no reason and you charged him with false arrest. So that, that's the legal situation, if you will. As far as how he is able to demonstrate that he's a Roman citizen, I do not know. In the Roman Empire from this time forward, the Roman emperor was a god. So what would happen is each emperor died, the senate would deify the emperor. And his son, who would be the next emperor, would have the official title of the son of God. So you had a Caesar cult, which was a state cult. I don't know that it was the case that anybody actually believed that this guy was a god. But what it became is a state cult, and what you had to do is you had to show up at some temple. Didn't matter what temple it was, just some temple, and you had to offer a token sacrifice to Caesar. And that token sacrifice was usually a pinch of incense. And the priest in the pagan temple would then take your little passport, it's called a little belly, a little book, and would mark in the little book that you were in fact, a dutiful citizen of Rome and had done your obligatory 
sacrifice to Caesar. It was a loyalty test. So I don't know when the, the practice of the little books started, but certainly having such a little book would be proof that you were a citizen, much like a passport today. Now, the problem, of course, is the Jews wouldn't do it. And the Roman law was, since the Jews and several other religions, not just the Jews, but the Jews had a long-standing historical religion that had been handed down from generation to generation that forbade such practices. So the Romans didn't try and make them do it. But that meant that the Jews were responsible for policing their own as far as keeping good order and discipline within the empire, which of course is what goes to the problem with the Christian Gentiles who show up in the synagogues. Because the Christian Gentiles who show up in the synagogues, who have the Holy Spirit, do not want to sacrifice to Caesar anymore. But they're not Jews. And the Jews have an exemption as Jews, but you've got to have the circumcision and you've got to be a legitimate for real Jew. So this is a source of tension within the synagogue because the Christians want to be exempt, but the Jews don't want to be accused of harboring traitors. All of that is by way of saying, I have no idea how Paul is able to authenticate to this Roman that he is in fact a citizen. He may have something equivalent to a passport. I just don't know the answer to that. But the case that he makes is persuasive enough that the Tribune backs off and says, whoa, not only can we not flog this guy and find out what's going on, we got a serious problem because we have done a false arrest. So on to verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reasons why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? A couple things there. Ananias has already made his decision concerning Paul. And we'll get to why that is in just a minute. So when Paul asserts that he is Torah-keeping Jew, Ananias has him struck. This insult, you whitewashed wall, is specific to Judaism. What happens in Jerusalem, you have the three feasts of ascent, where the population of the town swells dramatically during the feast. The practice was to whitewash tombs so that the visitors who didn't know their way around necessarily would not inadvertently stumble into a tomb or across a tomb and thus render themselves unclean and unable to participate in the Feast of Ascent. Sort of like construction zone, you got the striped marker tape, stay out of here, this is a construction zone. In Jerusalem, it was whitewash on the tombs, which let everybody know, stay out of here because if you touch this, it's a tomb and you will be rendered unclean and you will not be able to partake of the feast. So when Paul calls this guy a whitewashed wall, what he's saying to him is the same thing that Yeshua 
said to them, on the outside you're whitewashed and clean, but inside you're nothing but corrupt. So it's a very Jewish insult, if you will. Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the councils, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now, full stop here. Finally occurred to my lightning fast mind, I've been reading this for years, and just duh. The political landscape in Jerusalem is you got several sects of Jews. Sadducees, as it says here, do not believe in the spirit, do not believe in angels, and do not believe in the resurrection. In other words, they believe that when you die, it's done. This is all there is. The Pharisees, of course, believe in the spirit, they believe in angels, they believe in all the stuff in the Old Testament. I'm not sure how the Sadducees get around that. I'm not a big student of it, but the Sadducees are the ones who run the temple. So they're the temple hierarchy and they own the temple. The Pharisees are just basically hard-shell Baptists. They are fundamentalist, 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 and they take religion seriously, but they are not of the Sadducean party. So they are separate from the temple. From the perspective of the Sadducees, for Paul to say that he is a witness to a resurrection is a direct assault against their sect. It's one thing to coexist with the Pharisees who believe in the possibility of resurrection. It's entirely another thing to have this guy ramming around saying, I have met the resurrected Lord. Big difference. So one of the reasons that the Sadducees are trying to get rid of Paul is because he represents a direct threat to their sect of Judaism because he's going around saying, I personally have experience of resurrection in the person of Yeshua. I had always thought, reading this passage before, that Paul was just looking at, you know, we got Democrats over there and Republicans over there, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw a ham sandwich between them and let them fight. That was what I thought was going on, and that's not what's going on. That's the result of it, but it's more serious than that, in that Paul, by claiming to have seen the resurrected Messiah, is going straight against the Sadducees, and what he's doing is he's telling everybody else, I am a witness of a resurrection. I am a Pharisee. Hey, Pharisees, I've witnessed a resurrection. And these Sadducees, who are the ones who are in charge of the mechanics of the temple, are trying to put me to death because I am a witness to a resurrection. It's far more serious than just throwing a ham sandwich between two warring factions. Somewhere around Friday before the crucifixion, the previous Friday of the crucifixion, he is at dinner in Bethany. He has raised Lazarus from the dead at that point, which means that the Sadducees are upset with him. He also goes in and he throws over the tables on the following Monday, assuming 
the triumphal entry is Sunday. I'm not being dogmatic about that. I'm just laying out a timeline. So the idea then that this guy is somebody that the Sadducees, who are in charge of the temple, don't want running around, they got good reasons from their perspective. So now this guy Paul comes back and he says, I have got personal revelation of the resurrection of this guy. And, oh, by the way, Pharisees, this is why they're after me. That's what causes this riot. It's more than just the words of the malcontents that come down from Asia. They're the ones that start the riot initially. But the Sadducees here have got real problems with this guy Paul because of the resurrection. So 23.9. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So one other little twist here. Paul, in his testimony, has told them about his Damascus Road experience. And one of the things that the Sadducees do not believe in is spiritual manifestations. So not only do we have the resurrected Yeshua, but we have a spiritual manifestation of the resurrected Yeshua, all of which is just straight contrary to what the Sadducees believe as doctrine. Verse 11. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, one of the things that's going to happen in the next couple of chapters, there's going to be some herky-jerky with the Romans and so forth and the Roman proconsul. He is going to try and return Paul to the Jews. And Paul is then, as a Roman citizen, going to appeal to Caesar which means as a Roman citizen then, according to law, he has to be shipped off to Rome. Well, at this point in Acts 23.11, Yeshua has told him, you're going to Rome. So when Paul later on, actually in timeline, it'll be a couple of years from this point, finally gets the opportunity, he's going to appeal to Caesar, which is going to secure his passage to Rome, fulfilling what Yeshua told him here. Verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you are going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So the whole official apparatus is lined up to get rid of Paul. 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner 
called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. First off, we assume that there are 40 Jews that died of dehydration because they didn't get the job done. Now, the other thing about this is what they want to have happen is they want the Romans to bring Paul down to the temple so that the Sanhedrin can question him and so forth. That's the pretext. So Paul is going to be traveling through the city with an escort of some number of Roman soldiers. And if these 40 Jews fall on these guys trying to kill Paul, there is an excellent chance that you're going to have some Roman bloodshed. Being in the middle of a riot is just not a good place to be, no matter what side you're on. So from the Tribune's point of view, the idea of sending a squad of soldiers down through the city with this guy Paul in the middle is a non-starter because he knows A, there's going to be a riot, and B, his folks are going to get injured. So even though he would probably like to get rid of Paul, he can't risk doing it because of the collateral damage. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers. Now a centurion is a commander of a hundred, century, a hundred. So two centurions would have 200 soldiers, which is a small battalion. So get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Now, I understand that the 200 soldiers probably not going to include cavalry. I expect that the cavalry is going to be a separate unit. What I don't know is whether the 200 spearmen are these 200 soldiers, which quite frankly makes sense to me, or whether you've got 470, which is a strong battalion escorting Paul. It isn't real clear how that's set up, but certainly you've got at least a short battalion with cavalry taking this guy a distance of what, 20 miles? Something like that. So 23 again. Then he called two of the centurions said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So what we're going to do is we are going to, at midnight, scoop Paul up and we're going to flee the city under cover of darkness so we don't get involved in a riot. Verse 24, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. <laughs> First off, this is great spin, because basically all he was trying to do was stop a riot. And it's only way after the fact that he found out that Paul is a Roman citizen. This makes it sound like, I saw this Roman citizen in trouble and I leapt into action to save him. Just saying, bureaucrats haven't changed in 2,000 years. 
So Jerusalem to Caesarea is 70 miles. Okay, verse 28. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So what he's saying is we're having a change of venue here. This guy can't get a fair trial in Jerusalem, so I am sending him to you out of town so you can convene a tribunal. You can try him separate from the high passions that are awash in Jerusalem right now. 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. So the infantry troops took him as far as Antipatris, which got him out of town. Then the infantry went back to Jerusalem, and the 70 cavalrymen with Paul went forward from there to Caesarea. 33. When they came to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Silesia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. Chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and in everywhere we accept this with full gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And remember, we've been through his missionary journeys through Asia and Macedonia and so forth, and it is in fact true that lots of places he went, there were riots. And the Romans didn't really care who you worship, just as long as you didn't scare the horses. So all the Romans care about is this guy's a catalyst. Everywhere he goes, there are riots. They aren't necessarily competent to determine who's at fault. They just know that this guy's a troublemaker. And really, that's the essential charge that is being made against him by the priest. And the one about defiling the temple, you remember the Asians, when they accused him, said, we saw this guy bring a Gentile into the temple. Remember, that was one of the accusations against him. So from their point of view, this may be embellished a bit, but everything that they've said has sort of happened. So the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all, all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. 
you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or storing up a crowd, either in the temple, nor in the synagogues, or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope of God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience both toward man and God. One of the things that Paul does over and over again is he affirms under oath, essentially, in courts of law, that he does in fact follow Torah. So the idea that Paul is inventing some new religion is just not true. He himself followed Torah. He himself, after the resurrection and being talked to by Messiah, did not tell anybody that the law had been done away with. Just isn't the case. Verse 17. This is still Paul speaking. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. So what he's saying is, I was purified, which is to say, following Torah, because you've got to be purified in order to clear a Nazarite vow. I was not causing anybody any trouble, and I was getting ready to make a sacrifice. And then these guys from Asia showed up and started flinging dust in the air, and those guys really ought to be here. If you want to know what the heck is going on, those are the ones that started all this. They really should be here. Verse 20. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So, what Paul is saying is, the only people that have any knowledge of what happened on my missionary journeys are the guys from Asia, and they're not here. The people who are standing here accusing me, I didn't do anything. I have followed the Torah, I was cleansed, I was going to do a sacrifice. I was just minding my own business when these clowns from Asia showed up and started hurling accusations and started a riot, like they have done in other cities. That's in parentheses. And once I got scooped up in this riot, then things snowballed because I stood in front of the council and I said, the reason I'm here is because I believe in the resurrection. And that caused the division between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and that caused further riots, but my beliefs are in line with a very large part of Judaism. I have done nothing wrong. And a Pharisee walking through the city is just fine, and I am in no respect any different from one of them, other than the fact that I now follow the way. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off by saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. So Felix knows what's going on. He is not 
some dumb Roman that just happens to be dumped in the middle of a Jewish theological argument. He, in fact, understands what's going on. 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. He's in a house arrest, or what I would call protective custody. Not really a prisoner, but not free to go, mostly because if he does, he's in danger. 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Yeshua Messiah. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So what Paul is doing is witnessing to Felix, whose wife is Jewish, and Felix is convicted. And Felix, rather than acting on that conviction, panics and backs out. And I will suggest that he does that for political reasons. And I have heard preachers say that at this point, Felix assured his ticket to hell. 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. After two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So at this point, Felix knows that there's not a problem, hangs on to Paul, and rather than freeing Paul, when he changes for the next governor, he hangs on to Paul so he doesn't cause problems with the Jews. There's no charge against him. And in fact, what's going to happen next is Festus is going to talk with Herod, and at the end of that conversation, Felix could say, well, the guy would actually be free to go, except for the fact that he's now appealed to Rome. So we got to do something with that. <laughs>